Hello, my friends, Patrick here with a very quick note before we get into the episode. John and I invite you to head to the website, optimalagency.co, and get your HWT score, your health, wealth, and time score. This is a free assessment that will give you a snapshot of where you are today on the road toward your optimal agency. 60 questions will only take you a few minutes. You'll get a sense of where you are strong and where you are weak. Again, optimalagency.co slash HWT. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you in advance, and let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Optimal Agency Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. As always, I'm joined by John Gilson. Together with you, we are exploring the ideas of agency, diving deep to discover a set of guidelines on how each of us can best operate in the day-to-day maximize our personal autonomy, professional freedom, and ultimately our positive impact on the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. How the heck are you, John? I'm motivated, Patrick. (laughs) Amazing. We're going to talk about something today. Often, many of these conversations, these episodes, they come from what you and I lovingly refer to as sparks. So just things we're reading, things we're coming across, connections we're trying to make as as it relates to this particular project, as it relates to our pursuit of agency. And so you you found a spark, you've got a spark that we're just going to kind of talk through and talk about today. Um, and it is an article from, we don't know exactly the sourcing, something some something to do with Harvard, coming out of Harvard to, to some degree. It's called, if money doesn't make you happy, then, prob- then you probably aren't spending it right. It's from, it uh, looks like there's three authors, Elizabeth Dunn from the University of British Columbia, Daniel Gilbert from Harvard, and Timothy Wilson from the University of Virginia. And we just have this PDF. We're not entirely sure where this lives otherwise, but we'll we'll link in the show notes for folks who want to read it. And we do actually highly recommend you do read it. We're not going to go through every bit and piece, but in the article, they lay out not, uh, sorry, eight principles of how to make spending money make you happy. And so I just want to start off with just a little bit from the top, um, which is they write, the correlation between income and happiness is positive, but modest. And this fact should puzzle us more than it does. If money can buy happiness, then why doesn't it? Because people don't spend it right. And the rest of the article, the rest of this piece, which is longer than just a, just an article, but the rest of this piece is a laying out for the arguments of how to spend it right. So um, I thought maybe it would make sense to just just give a super high level, like here are the eight principles, and then you and I maybe can dive into three or four of them that we feel like are either counterintuitive or just perhaps, you know, stuck out at us as particularly interesting. So just real high level, here are the eight principles and they're pretty self-explanatory. So they are useful to go through each one. Principle number one, buy experiences instead of things. Principle two, help others instead of yourself. Principle three, buy many small pleasures instead of a few big ones. Principle four, buy less insurance. Principle five, pay now and consume later. Principle six, think about what you're not thinking about. Principle seven, beware of comparison shopping. And principle eight, follow the herd instead of your head. So I'm going to leave it to you. Where, where do you want to begin? Where's the where's principle or concept or kind of overarching idea? Do you want to kind of kick this conversation off with? Well, let's start with this is all based on 
psychology experiments conducted at the university level. And it's probably therefore being conducted on predominantly fairly wealthy, well-educated people. Uh, and so with that caveat, I think that we need to th talk about the counterintuitive ones. So let's talk first. Let me just talk about the ones that I think are not counterintuitive. So buying more experiences, fewer goods. Mm -hmm. The authors make the point that in buying an experience, you get to savor not only the experience and the closeness with others, you also get the memory of that experience. It's less susceptible to the hedonic treadmill that is adapt adaptation to it over time, because every time you remember it, you're going to remember it slightly mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't carry on with you. It's not like buying a new credenza that's now in your house and you right. get used to because you see it all the time. Yep. Uh, spending on others rather than yourself. People don't think that will make them happy. At the same time, I think a lot of people understand that giving gifts to others, whether they're material or gifts of time, et cetera, uh, spending money on other people is a better use of it in terms of just the uh, what that buys, right? It buys social esteem, joy, togetherness, something that having a new uh, car simply doesn't do for you. Uh, so I think the first one is that's counterintuitive is the third one. Mm. Buying many small pleasures rather than few large ones. Mm -hmm. This is super counterintuitive to me. Mm -hmm. If you were like, hey, you can either get a new house or right, you can have two spectacular dates a month for the rest of your life. Yep. I'd be like house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But it's, and I think many people would. Yeah. Right. But that's not how it works out. And they lean on some fairly basic research. But it makes a lot of sense. So one of those pieces of research was that they offered undergraduates either an eight-minute massage or something, this is directionally accurate, a two or three-minute massage followed by a one-minute break followed by a two or three-minute massage. Yep. And they note that people who received the break in between uh, rated the experience more favorably and, and this is interesting for all the marketers out there, were willing to spend twice as much on the massaging device as the people who had received a continuous massage. Mm -hmm. And what they posit is that essentially that fights against hedonic adaptation. Yeah. That is our tendency to take less and less joy out of something over time. That, that is stable. That doesn't change. Right. Yep. And they talk about the marginal utility of more. And of course, that's cool because we talk about enough all the time. But the marginal utility of the, let's say you get a, I think they use the example of a five ounce cookie. Mm -hmm. The last ounce doesn't bring you the joy that the first ounce does. But by breaking it up by time, and instead of giving you a five ounce cookie, giving you two, two and a half ounce cookies with a break between, you don't experience the diminishment of marginal utility of more. Mm -hmm right? That the last bite was so close temporally to the first bite and there was a break that you didn't have time to adapt. And so I think that's really cool. And so we say, if you want to, if you want to avoid hedonic adaptation, which is both impossible and a great goal, mm -hmm. right? Uh, get yourself many small pleasures and not a few large ones. And I think it's really good too, in that that will build your wealth mm -hmm. actually, mm. right? Uh, the richer you get, the larger a large pleasure has to be to be a large pleasure, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, which is, is really interesting, right? Because you don't say like, okay, I'm a thousand air, cool, my car runs, yeah. right? I'm a hundred thousand air, cool, I got a nice car that runs and it's new. I'm a millionaire, now I had to go buy a $300,000 car just to get 
any kind of feel yeah, yeah. that I had progression in in my automobile. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a drug where you need to continue to up the dose to feel the effect. That's actually a great analogy because it's exactly right. Yeah. You have, that's what a hedonic adaptation is, is you have to continually up the dose. And so if you don't have to up the dose, it's a lot cheaper to mm. buy a Toyota Corolla and then, you know, two years later to buy another Toyota Corolla than it is to go buy a Mercedes. Mm -hmm. Two for the price of one, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, I think that's really cool and one I'm going to incorporate into my life. Uh, the next one that's counterintuitive is don't buy overpriced insurance. Yeah. So this was super counterintuitive <laughs> to me because, I, you know, you read like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb yep. and the Black Swan. Yep. What is insurance? It's paying a little bit routinely to protect you from something that's highly unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. Basically, but if it does happen, it's catastrophic, right? So you read NNT and it's like, you need to make sure you're not exposed to the catastrophic downside, yep. which is a great reason to buy long-term care insurance, yep. right? It's a great reason to buy an umbrella policy over your property, your house, your family, et cetera. So I think the authors are a little myopic here in terms of the actual impact of wealth that insurance mm -hmm. now, but they don't, they're not giving the example of long-term care insurance and umbrella policies. They're giving the example of don't buy the insurance on the DVD player, right. which I don't know why I'm saying DVD player. Hey guys, there used to be this thing. You put a disc in it and played a movie. This was before you could just push a <laughs> you button. You could just use a TV. You could just use it. Yeah. yeah. Before the TV yeah. just did that thing. But you know, you, you go to Best Buy, you buy an electronic, you know, what's a good example? iPhones, mm -hmm. right? Cause you can buy Apple care. Yep. Which sounds great. It's like they'll polish your apple for you. They'll make sure it doesn't fall off the tree. Uh, but the, what does Apple Care do? It replaces your phone if you break your phone. Yeah. And the author's point, the psychologist, their point is you have a almost infinite capacity not only to adapt through hedonic adaptation to things with an upside, you have an almost unlimited capacity to adapt to horrible, bad things happening to you. Mm -hmm. And your iPhone uh, breaking isn't even on the register, mm -hmm. right? So for instance, when they talk to people, they, and they bring the example of talking on the upside to people who have won the lottery versus people who didn't, and they find that the people who won the lottery are actually uh, some temporal time later less happy than the people who never won the lottery in the first place. Mm -hmm hedonic adaptation, they also make the point of an amputee, mm. somebody literally losing a limb, not being less happy two, three years down the road than somebody that has all their limbs. And that's crazy. But it points to the fact that human beings can adapt to a hedonic baseline. We're all happy or sad around a very tight set point. Mm -hmm. And to only acknowledge that that set point doesn't alter much when good things happen is to ignore that that set point doesn't alter very much when bad things happen either. So don't buy insurance against minimal bad things, mm -hmm. right? I would still argue that you best insure yourself against maximal bad things, yeah. right? But that's a great point though, is yeah, is to distinguish, but there's all bads are not created equal. All bads are not, all bads don't remove you from the game. And that's NNT's yep. kind of a point is that to win any game that rewards long-term dedication, long-term appropriate behavior, you have to still be in the game. Mm -hmm. And so you can't do anything that knocks you out of that game. In other words, if you're in the stock market, you shouldn't unacceptably concentrate your investments in one stock that could go to zero, right? Because that knocks you out of the game. And so in this case, I think that's exactly what the authors really aren't paying attention to is, yeah, it doesn't knock you out of the game to have your iPhone broken.
Okay. Well, uh, what else? What other counterintuitive ones do you want to pull out? Uh, yeah, delay, I think delay consumption's the next one and relatively counterintuitive. Yep. Pay now and consume later. Pay now, consume later. So we get the opposite, right? I think we just bought a uh, one of those sleep cover things that regulates the temperature. And uh, my girlfriend got the buy now, pay later, whatever that thing is. Yep. You know, it's only 60 bucks a month and we get the thing now, right? And the point that the authors are making is that credit cards allow you to do that. Everything is set up in a uh, reward now, pay later format, but that you'd be happier if you paid now and consumed later. And, and the idea is that if you paid for a, let's say that you paid for a vacation today, it was 100% down, but the vacation wasn't going to happen for five months. What you would Derive is the joy of anticipating the vacation in addition to the vacation itself. So by getting the reward now and paying later, we're depriving ourselves of the reward of anticipation. And the nice thing about the reward of anticipation is it's devoid of downside, mm-hmm. right? Like when you're thinking about that vacation in five or six months, you're not remembering that airports suck. Yep. And that you have to, and yep. that you have to check your bag, yep. and that you're, you're not thinking about the sun get there, <laughs> and your kid is not going to be packed until an hour before it happens, and you're yeah the sunburn. You're not thinking yep. about all those details. You're yep. you only get the upside, yep. and so the point being like, hey, bask in that dream esque landscape of the upside. Uh, so I've got an example for you. Yeah. Uh, so Annie. Uh, I'm sorry to talk about you so much, but you're so interesting. Uh, she uh, she ordered a, a new Prius, uh, a, the uh, the Toyota Prius, and it's literally coming from Japan on a boat, and uh, it's not here yet. Mm-hmm. It should arrive uh, about three or four weeks after we record this. And she's so happy about this Prius that it's coming and it, to, a, to a level that's completely not in line with, I'm anticipating a Prius, <laughs> right? Uh, we get to talk about the color. We get to talk about the features, what it does. Uh, what's this feature? What does this feature do? Hey, isn't it going to be great when we don't have to worry about gas when we want to drive 500 miles? We never drive 500 <laughs> miles, but won't it be great if we don't have, because we could now. So she's not only anticipating the receipt of the physical object and the receipt of the experience that the physical object will engender, right? She's getting all the joy out of owning the thing and it's not here and she hasn't actually paid for it. She's actually just put some money down on it. So I think that's really interesting too. You can get a vehicle reserved. It used to be 500 bucks. Now you have to go to the dealer and give them a thousand bucks. But you brought up an example of a business model that's yeah, actually this was This was Tesla's business model until they reached a degree of scale, which is put money down and you'll get it when we finish making it. And now Rivian, which is another uh, electric car, is basically the same model. And, and Tesla is obviously delivering now. And Rivian may never, <laughs> right? But there are people who, maybe they don't do this explicitly, but I think part of the experience is it's going to come and it's going to be amazing. And they're willing to be patient, if that's the right word. They're willing to put a little bit of money down for to literally buy that feeling. Yeah. Because they could go buy a car tomorrow. They can even buy an electric car tomorrow because now that's not a thing. Now, now that there's not so much scarcity that that's even... So by doing that, you they are literally, again, consciously or not, recognizing 
I'm going to be so happy for the next six months. At least a little bit of me is going to be so happy for the next six months until this Rivian shows up or my Tesla shows up. So luxury companies, of which I don't count Toyota, but I certainly count Tesla, or, or at least old Tesla, when you could get one immediately. Yeah. Luxury is based on scarcity. Yeah. Scarcity is based on you can't have this, right? And that business model allows tremendous margins. Yeah. I mean, it, it should be noted that Elon Musk is no longer the richest man in the world, but he's close. But the richest man alive owns uh, a, a collection of companies that only sell luxury goods. LVMH. Yeah, LVMH. Thank yeah, you. LVMH. Yeah, LVMH. Balencia and 17 other high-end, yeah. Yeah, Louis Vuitton Louis- um, among them. Uh, yeah, and so that model is actually tremendously levered by people that understand that psychology. You can order a Birkin bag, but you can't have it. Imagine that. Imagine that model. I wonder, you, you know what we should do? Let's build an e-commerce company that ships shit really slowly. <laughs> like really exciting stuff. But like, yeah, no, it has to be, <laughs> yeah. right? It can't be unexciting right. stuff and delay consumption. Like, like we need toilet paper. It's like, oh, it'll be here in three weeks. Like, like yeah. the pandemic, that's close. <laughs> uh, yep. so, so I think that one's really interesting. Uh, the other one I wanted to draw some attention to, I'm skipping right over yep. uh, the, the detail one uh, because uh, we actually talked about it here a little bit, but beware comparison shopping. Yeah. I think this is a really, really interesting one um, because we tend to do it. Mm-hmm. We tend to want to say, I want to maximize for some quality of the thing that I'm buying and I want to make sure I got the the best one, yep. you know, and uh, or I got the right one for the amount of money I'm willing to spend. But instead of starting with a list of the features we want in the thing, we start with what's available in the market and we start comparing those two things. And the and author- let that be the anchor for which all our decisions come after that. That's exactly right. And that's the author's point is that uh, you're going to start in comparison shopping the things that are already on the market. You're going to start comparing features you don't care about, but they will become the anchor of the thing you start to care about. So, for instance, Annie actually wanted a Tesla, yep. right? And my argument was there are no superchargers anywhere near us because we live in the boondocks. And so let's please get something that allows <laughs> gasoline to be a, por- a portion of the substitute. But, you know, it'd be really easy to start comparing those two things and not saying I need something that reliably and cheaply gets me to point A to point B with a, with an acceptable impact on the environment and saying I need an all electric motor, right? And so at that point of comparison, you immediately throw away good alternatives that meet 90% of what she and I were shopping for a car for, yeah. right? And so I think the better approach than comparison shopping is to Make a list of the things that you need, the thing you're buying to do mm-hmm. without looking at anything, with the, you know, referencing your own self-knowledge. So for instance, what do I need a television to do, right? And that way, you're not going to necessarily compare on screen size, yeah. right? You might compare on resolution, boot up time, right? Any number of things that matter to you, but start with your list of things that you care about so that you buy something that satisfies those criteria, not something where you're you're anchoring off in space and comparison shopping. Mm-hmm. I think the other interesting thing, and this isn't directly in the article, I don't believe, uh, but talking about regret, mm-hmm. right? And regret minimization, comparison shopping leads to regret because you will always wonder, 
what about the thing I didn't buy? Yep. What's the FOMO of the of the model that I was looking at that I didn't go home with? Yep. You know, and by its very nature, comparison shopping is about trade-offs. There will always be something there to regret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this entire article and this conversation, obviously, that we're having, it, it really is is um, couched in the idea of using money to buy happiness, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not... I just feel like it's worth reiterating, like how are those things, the, the principles that we just talked about or just the principles in general, how do they affect in a positive direction our happiness? And it might be a good place to talk about what they have in the article, which they, uh, which is termed uh, effective, um, remind me of what it's called. It's uh, effective forecast. Effective forecast. Thank you. So that feels important to me because that I think is the through line across all of these principles and the thing that causes the unhappiness. Yeah. So affective forecasting error. I'm probably not going to do this justice. Please read the article. But it's basically, we don't know how spending money will make us feel. Because if we did, right, we wouldn't have these fantasies in our head of faster car, more beautiful partner, uh, bigger house, Mm -hmm. right? Because those things don't make people happy. And so our inability to predict what uh, will make us happy leads us to say, what does the what does the research, what does the psychological research say will make us happy? And so that's the through line on all these things is to say, hey, spending more money on experiences instead of material goods will actually make you happier because that's experimentally valid. And uh, I think it's it's about saying, okay, you're telling me that I don't know what will make me happy in spending money. I I'm willing to accept your premise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to sit back and say, I am willing to admit that I might not know how to spend money to make make me happy. And so I think that they've laid out in this article uh, some really good ways to think about that. Uh, I think the thing that they haven't done, which is really nice, is talked about how do you truly operationalize that in your life? Mm-hmm. Right. So, for instance, uh, buying many small pleasures, not few large ones. Well, OK, it's a good principle. How can you operationalize that with your family, with your friends to say, hey, this is this is what we're doing. And it might look like and it, it'll benefit your wealth, too, which is cool. Right. But you might say, hey, rather than go skiing in Whistler, where we don't live, on the other side of the country for five days and spending, I'm guessing, $7,000 for the two of us to do that and $10,000 for a family of four, you know, you might say, hey, let's get a pass to the local ski hill and go every Saturday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so you want to think with these rules, how would I operationalize this in my own life? I think beware comparison shopping is an interesting one. Like if you've reached a certain amount of wealth, and I'm not talking, you know, huge money, but where a $10 discrepancy doesn't matter to you. Right. Find the thing that satisfies the needs that you have and spend the money and never look. Say, I, I don't, I won't comparison shop. Yep. Right. Uh, Unless I genuinely don't know the answer to the question of does this have the thing I want, you know, in which case you are on that mission to find the thing that satisfies you. But, uh, you know, not making $10 optimizations when $10 doesn't matter to you could could be huge in making you happier. It makes me think of, uh, you know, just a general rule of like, you know, if you're running a business or something, like if you empower your, let's just call them customer service agents to solve any problem, as long as it costs less than $250, 
right? Like you are empowered. If you can, if you can fix it for less than 250, do not come to me with it. Cause you are, I am empowering you to solve that. What does that do? Well, the person who otherwise would have to make that decision no longer has to make those decisions anymore. Right. And so all to say like, and maybe this is, this is price only, but I think that it's still helpful. It's just say like, to your point, like, where is the, what's the number under which it doesn't matter under which you won't feel it. You don't care. It could be $10, could be $110, could be $1,010, depending on who you are. Yeah. But if, if it's under that, don't sweat it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think about Ryan Holiday's rule of like, if a book seems interesting to me, I always buy it. Why? Cause it's like a $20 book. If he never reads it, it's no harm to him, mm -hmm. but it could also, there could be massive upside if that's the right book at the right time. And like, it could change, it literally change his life. And so it's just like, it's just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's worth pushing on is that we've, there's a, there's a, uh, it's almost pop culture that money can't make you happy. Right. And they rely on uh, research that actually said that any income over $75,000, which probably needs to be inflation adjusted yeah. at this point, uh, doesn't uh, meaningfully contribute to happiness. And I like this article in that it points to, well, hmm, it can mm -hmm. if you spend it right. Yeah. And it's silly to think that it doesn't. The wealthy enjoy better health, uh, better educational outcomes, better jobs, nicer neighborhoods, et cetera. Money can buy you happiness. It's just not how you think it can, you know? And so I love the idea of looking at these things and saying, am I using money to make me happy? Could I use it more? Because one of the things that happened, this happens to me anyway, I forget that I can spend money to make my life easier mm -hmm. because I'm in such a pattern of live below your means, invest, mm -hmm. live below your means, invest to the point where like, I don't have to make hundred dollar decisions anymore, yep. which is wonderful. Right. But I also don't spend the hundred dollars to make <laughs> uh, yep. myself happier. The people around you, you can actually use money as a lever using these rules and your own formulation of these rules to make your life better. Uh, so let's not demonize dollars as something for their own sake, if they can be a point of leverage to make everyone around you, including yourself, happier. Well, that, we're going we're gonna to wrap up. We're going to give them the last word. I'm just going to read their conclusion because it's short. They write, when asked to take stock of their lives, people with more money report being a good deal more satisfied. But when asked how happy they are at the moment, people with more money are barely different than those with less. This suggests that our money provides us with satisfaction when we think about it, but not when we use it. That shouldn't happen. Money can buy many, if not most, uh, if not all of the things that make people happy. And if it doesn't, then the fault is ours. Again, just as a reminder, this article... I'm going to scroll all the way back up the top. It's called, If Money Doesn't Make You Happy, Then You are Probably Aren't Spending It Right. We'll link it in the show notes. Any last words, John, or you want to get out of here? Let's get out of here. All right, my friends. Thank you out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings. Please leave us a review if you are finding these episodes helpful and valuable. That will tell the algorithm overlords that they should serve this podcast to more people. And that's, uh, that's what we're hoping for. So thank you in advance. John and I will be back next week for another episode of Optimal Agency. One more note, one more invitation before we go, a reminder to get your HWT score to figure out where you are today on the road to Optimal Agency. OptimalAgency.co slash HWT is where you can find it. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.